Okay, we have another episode with Brock. Brock has been a, a guest in the past with the Palestine episode. And the reason why um, I wanted to have this episode was because I'm starting to see a phenomenon like become louder and louder where people are like politicizing indigeneity, but they're politicizing for pro-colonization purposes, you know? And we're gonna go through three examples. And the first example is, so Brock sent me a post that said, uh, Zionism is decolonization. And I was just like, almost died. <laughs> <laughs> so Brock, do you wanna introduce yourself and talk about why using indigeneity for pro-Zionism is totally fucked up? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, my name is Barak. Um, I'm an Egyptian-American and I'm Jewish. My family is Iskandarani. We're from Alexandria. And I do mutual aid uh, work in Portland here. Uh, and mostly do work supporting the indigenous tribes of the Pacific Northwest. Um, and yeah, why is that's so fucked up well first of all it's just a it's a colonization project so calling it decolonization is just a complete co-option of the language um it was never meant to be you know it was it was never framed in this way as a like indigenous reclamation of land until very recently like in the 1880s like we discussed this a bit on the last podcast but um in the 1880s when the you know founding fathers i'm doing air quotes of zionism um we're coming over from europe it was always a colonization project that's how they framed it so that the european powers would support it um like we'll be uh essentially an arm of european civilization and democracy and a beacon of western values that will um essentially work as like a wall and a shield um from like the savage arab nations of the middle east and north africa um and it was very much framed that way um, as, you know, and at that time in the 1880s and up until World War II, colonization wasn't, a, you know, thought of as a bad thing. It was like something countries were proud of, like the British, you know, the sun never sets on the British Empire and bullshit like that. Um, and only after World War II, when the, sorry, my dogs are barking, um, when the global opinion started to shift, did they start to try and reframe it as a decolonization project? Um, sorry, my I want to say that your your you know your dog barking is totally cool. Um, I mean, sometimes I have my cats in here eating cat food in here. It's so <laughs> yeah. Hold on, can we can we take like a ten second break? I'm gonna just yeah. put my dogs in the in the other room so That's they're not fine. barking. We're back. Yeah, sorry. 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 About that. That was was okay. Otis and Banjo freaking out a little bit. Um, so yeah, I'm not exactly sure where I was in my train of thought, but I'm just gonna read from this book. It's um by Ella Shohat, and she's a Iraqi Jewish um academic. And she wrote this essay in 1988, and it's from the collection of essays on the Arab Jew, Palestine, and other displacements. And um so Zionism claims to be a liberation movement for all Jews. 
and the Zionist ideologies have spared no effort in their attempt to make the two terms Jewish and Zionist virtually synonymous. In fact, however, Zionism has been a, pri a primarily a liberation movement for European Jews, and that we know problematically, and more precisely for that tiny minority of European Jews who settled in Israel. Um, although Zionism claims to provide a homeland for all Jews, that homeland was never offered to all with the same address. Sephardi Jews, which they're calling Arab Jews here, were first brought to Israel for the specific European Zionist reasons. And once they were systematically discriminated against by Zionism, which deployed its energies and materials and material resources differently uh, to the consistent advantage of the European Jew and to, de to delineate the situation of structural oppression experienced by Sephardi Jews in Israel. So the thing is, there were Jews who were indigenous to Palestine, but they were Palestinians, right? They lived, they were, they lived completely integrated in Palestinian society. They weren't thought of as, you know, any different. There have always been multiple religions in Palestine that, you know, it's the birthplace of Christianity, um, Judaism, and then um, Islam obviously came during the first caliphate. And throughout history, there were always Jewish populations there who were, you know, lived as indigenous people, um, but they just read a different book than the Muslims or the Christians. And those people were systematically discriminated against as well, um, just as the, you know, Muslim and Christian Palestinians. And there are stories like um, Edward Said talks about it because he grew up in West Jerusalem, which was ethnically cleansed in 1948. And he talks about Palestinian Jewish families being ethnically cleansed because they were just, you know, they were all just Arabs. Um, and there's stories of like, you know, Palestinian, someone uh, I know who's a Palestinian Egyptian woman, her grandmother was a Yemeni Jew who had been living her whole life in Palestine. And in 48, when their village was ethnically cleansed, she ended up in a refugee camp in Jordan and that's where she died. Um, so like the entire claim of like this is an indigenous reclamation project is like categorically false um, because not only did they you know come as a colonizing force but the actual jewish indigenous people who were there were also systematically discriminated yeah so it, it's wild you know have you heard before you sent me that post, did you hear that before? Like Zionism is decolonization. Like, have you heard that argument before? Because I've I, heard, I guess, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, you please continue. I've heard that, you know, growing up, you know, you're, you know, hearing Zionist um, propaganda from like Christians, you know, and, you know, hearing that all oh, that land belongs to the Jewish people. You know, it was taken away from them, so they're just taking it back. And I always thought to myself as a native person, well, you know, our land was taken away uh, anywhere from 500 to 100 years ago. And where's our, where's your passion for us? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah. So, I, to me, I, I find it, I don't find it surprising, but I just find it like, I just find it that it's just hearing, uh, you know, using that terminology for Zionism is just disgusting. I couldn't agree more. And yeah, it's something that really hadn't, you know, no one was saying that until very recently um, that it was like this indigenous reclamation of land. It was always a 
colonist project. Um, and the thing is like in that book that I, the quote I just read, they talk about how they wanted to make Zionism and Judaism indistinguishable. And by doing that, it blurs the lines between, you know, like these biblical stories and actual history of what happened. Cause you know, it's like the claim for indigeneity is that every single Jew is a descendant of the 12 tribes that came and became the kingdoms of Judea and Israel, you know, 3,200 years ago. And like, we talked about this a bit in the last podcast, like that's just impossible because, you know, migration, um, intermarriage, like it wouldn't be possible to have Ethiopian Jewish people, um, Yemenite Jewish people, Ukrainian Jewish people, Bukharian Jewish people, Chinese Jewish people, if we were all descendants of the same 12 tribes, right? Um, it just wouldn't, doesn't add up. And then if you look at like Jewish texts, Jewish prayers, um, our holidays, there is always this uh, sort of call to like, go back to the land of Sion, Zion. And um, we say it in our prayers, you know, like we pray towards Jerusalem, we say like next year in Jerusalem. And so <laughs> sort of taking these things that have always been a part of our vernacular and a part of our religion and turning it into a violent political theory um, was in, totally intentional on their part um, because they knew that if they could just make Judaism and Zionism indistinguishable anytime Zionism was criticized, it would be anti-Semitic, which of course isn't the case. Um, so you had like, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought a bit, but. Um, yeah, it, it's, I, I see, you know, what you're getting and it's, uh, it's hard, you know, uh, seeing that type of rhetoric be adopted. And I think, it's, you know, I think the West is, you know, is slowly adopting like this, like woke, um, you know, uh, language, like, oh, you know, Bush, not Bush, I don't know why I'm like 20 years back. <laughs> uh, Biden, Biden is like, oh, look, my vice president is a black woman and my cabinet's, you know, the most diverse, but, you know, they're still imperialist, they're still capitalist, you know, they're still bombing people trying to you know you know set up proxy wars uh and funding you know shitty corporations so you know adopting this thing which doesn't make you any less like evil yeah totally and and the thing with like so often when i'll be arguing with people in israel about zionism and like how it is colonization they're like oh yeah well you're american what, do you, what about the what about the Native Americans there and what you guys did to them? And I'm like, yeah, it's totally fucked up. We need to like return all of the land right now. And they're like, shit, didn't expect them to say that. Um, but then there's the other side of the coin where you have Israelis framing it as the same. Like we're like the Native Americans. We had our land taken from us and now we just want it back. And like, I've heard them say land back, which is like disgusting. Um, and just the general co-option of you know, it's like a classic tactic. Like if you can co-opt the language of the oppressed, um, you essentially make it, you take away all of its meaning. If, you know, when they're using terms like indigenous reclamation, land back, decolonization, um, in regards to their colonial project, it takes the power away from those words when they're used on the other side in an earnest, genuine way. 
Um, and so like, I mean, just look, what indigenous people, like look at Miss Universe right now, right? So it's happening as we speak in Eilat in the south of occupied Palestine. And, you know, there were countries that decided to boycott it and um, like participate in BDS and, you know, use their privilege and platform to stand against apartheid. But most of the people just still came. And there's this really famous uh, group of photos and video that's been going around of all of the contestants dressed in traditional thobes, like in traditional Bedouin clothing. And they're making traditional Bedouin food and they're dancing to traditional Bedouin music. And the post said, hashtag visit Israel. And it's like, really? This is what you're framing as Israeli culture? This, like these people who you've been systematically oppressing, like Bedouin, I'm, I'm, for those who aren't familiar, they're an indigenous people um, who are native to the Levant, like Palestine, Syria, Lebanon, um, Jordan, Egypt, and kind of all over um, North Africa. And Bedouin people, like, you know, some of the Bedouin folks who live in Palestine are lawyers and doctors and live in cities. Some of, a lot of them still live um, like in tribal communities and they are Israeli citizens, the ones who live in Palestine. Does that protect them from the apartheid state? Absolutely not. Like there's a village. Um, so a lot of Bedouin people live in the Nakab, which is um, the desert in Southern Palestine. And there's one village there that's been demolished 183 times. Um, so I'm just like, from this article, the Al-Araqib the Al village, home to 22 Palestinian families, has been destroyed eight times last year. Aziz Al-Turi, a member of the Committee of, for Defense of Al-Araqib, told Andalu Agency, Palestinians will rebuild the destroyed structures as soon as possible. As long as we are alive and free, we will never leave Al-Araqib, he asserted. And yeah, that, that village was demolished eight times last year and it has been demolished 183 times in the, since you know 1948. So these people, they're simultaneously stealing their culture, calling it Israeli culture. Well then, you know, at the same time, calling these people savages, saying they have no rights to the land, destroying their homes repeatedly, stealing their lands repeatedly, um, and just using systematic state violence to murder, oppress, and ethnically cleanse them. And that's the thing, you know, it's like if, if they were an, an indigenous people in a land, they would have their own culture. They wouldn't have to steal culture from another indigenous community um, to frame as their own. And, and Bedouin culture has never been Jewish culture, you know, like they're Bedouin people are, you know, like many are descendants of the original, um, you know, like tribes, Arabian tribes that came down and started the caliphate. And so like, there was never a history of Jewish Bedouin people. So just framing it in that way is totally disingenuous. And then the fact that they deny the existence of Jewish Arab people and then will simultaneously say Arab culture is our culture, but only when it works for us and only when it's, you know, working in a way that perpetuates our state <laughs> oppression and validates our existence on this land that we stole. Yeah, I think I remember you saying that so, something about DNA tests and 
and people don't want to acknowledge that they're Arab as well or part Arab. Yeah, I will, you know, fuck DNA tests, obviously, that's colonized for shit. <laughs> um, but no, it's, I just, last time, yeah, we were talking about how it's funny that like um, a lot of these DNA tests are banned for Israelis. And I think it's because they don't, you know, there's no specifically Jewish Arab DNA. It would just like, you know, these people who, one parent from Morocco, one parent from Iraq would come up as totally Arab and Maghrebi. You know, there would be nothing that was definitively Jewish about their DNA. Um, but just in general, like there was, you know, the invention of the Mizrahim, which is this term Mizrahi that's used, um, again, um, <laughs> come here one second. Okay. We're back. Go, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. All these damn dogs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, in Essentially, when um, they started to conceive the state, they were like, okay, there's these Jews who are living all over the Arab world. We need to bring them into the fold as essentially a source of, they called it um, Jewish labor. And the concept was like, if it's us working the land and us producing on the land and self-sustaining, then the land belongs to us. And it's a, like a justification. But it was always like framed in this way that, these people were, you know, savages, and there was always like the need and want to de-Arabize folks. Um, so it's like this in '48, you had Jews coming from Yemen, from Iran, from Yem, uh, from Iraq, from Egypt, Tunisia, Morocco, um, you know, sort of Turkey, all over the Middle East and uh, North Africa. And they couldn't have it where there were, you know, these dozens um, of different ethnic groups who were all Arab people and lived culturally as Arab people and were Arab people. So they were like, okay, you're all Mizrahim and it means Eastern or Oriental. And so they essentially were like, you're all the same. You were all just the Jews who were scattered about uh, the Arab world, but you're not Arab anymore. Now you're Mizrahi. And so they literally like invented a new term to use that's become this like, uh, you know, thing that people claim is an identity now and are like, you know, I'm Mizrahi, I'm not Arab, I'm, I've always been Mizrahi. It's like, oh, you're, one of your parents is Amazigh, one of your parents is Iraqi, Kurdish, like, you know, you come from distinctly, two distinctly different ethnic groups and neither of them are Mizrahi. Um, so in do you do you still hear that that term i mean like i think you know maybe i'm asking my own question that that term now like do, have, have, have people bought so into it that they like totally forget their family history or they they say yeah my family's from iraq right well or essentially it's now framed as this thing where like all Jewish people were living in these horrible conditions in the Arab world and they were living um, oppressed as savages and didn't have rights and couldn't practice their Judaism freely. And, and that's all bullshit. Like, just look at my Saba, my grandfather, you know, until the rise of Zionism and um, the eventual dispossession of 
you know, Jewish Arabs from their nations. My grandfather worked at the University of Alexandria. He was like the head of the language department. He taught multiple dialects of Arabic. He spoke multiple dialects of Arabic. He spoke Aramaic and translated Aramaic. He spoke Hebrew. He spoke Italian, French. Like, you know, he was he was very much thriving in the modern Egyptian <laughs> Arab world. Um, so when they try and frame it as this, we rescued them. They were all, you know, being systematically murdered and this and that. And um, that's just a total misrepresentation of history. Like, yes, of course, there was anti-Semitism um, that existed. But like, look back as far as the first caliphate in Spain, like the Jews who lived in Spain at that time, ask the Muslims to come. And I was going to mention that, too. I was going to mention that because I know when the Muslims came in and the Christians, you know, some, some say in some cities, the Christians ran, but the, the Jewish population stayed in place. They were like, well, <laughs> yeah, they were like, hell yeah. Like get these Byzantine motherfuckers out of here. Like, and they, yeah. And they thrived in, you know, in Al-Andalus. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just like, if you look far back in history, there was, there was never a time when it was like, we have to convert all these Jews or we have to kill all these Jews. And yes, things like the Farhud in Iraq happened where like hundreds of Jews were killed in one night and their businesses were destroyed. But that was after Zionism and, you know, sort of a result of Zionism. And a lot of people will get mad at me for saying that. Um, but it's like in 1940 in Iraq, 20% of Baghdad was Jewish and thriving and living happily. And then, you know, 10 years later, there's these mass killings and it's what what changed the state of israel was invented like menachem begin and these irgun terrorists were bombing places in iraq bombing places in egypt bombing the king david hotel in jerusalem just like reigning terror to try and scare these jews into moving um to their new state yeah i think you know going back a little bit to spain uh during the reconquista when the when the christians came start taking stuff over uh, and they were almost took over all the way. Uh, one of the first things they did was discriminate against Jewish people. <laughs> you know, so it's like these Christians, like they have the history of persecuting Christians a lot more than the Muslims or Arabs. You know, I also have um, a personal friend of mine in college, and she was a Catholic minority living in Iraq. You know, mm-hmm. and. She said it was, you know, people just lived together, you know, it wasn't no like discrimination and, you know, but when the U.S. came in and it was like, you know, fighting among sex, you know, and like next, you know, ISIS comes in and it's just, you know, when it, whenever the, whenever Europeans come in, it's, it's a mess. <laughs> so historically, every single fucking time. <laughs> it's like dude don't don't even invite them dude you're not invited to my house <laughs> you know yeah it, it sucks man but it, it's it's the truth and they want you know creating uh these conflicts is you know it, it benefits you know it's part of imperialism imperialism so you know we become weaker fighting amongst ourselves and they become stronger you know and they just you know watch us and they benefit from our us, you know, our conflicts, inner conflicts. Totally. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm going to read another little bit from this okay. uh, essay, Sephardim in Israel. So within Israel, European Jews constitute a first world elite dominating not only the Palestinian, but also the Oriental Jews. 
the Sephardim, which Arab Jews, um, as a Jewish third world people form a semi-colonized nation within a nation. My analysis here is indebted to the anti-colonial discourse generally of France Fanon, um, and specifically to Edward Said's indispensable contribution to this discourse. And so, yeah, it's like, it was, it was always the intention of like, we want to make a state for ourselves, for the white European Jews. We're going to use these brown and black um, Oriental, as they called us, like Arab Jews and Persian Jews and Kurdish Jews and Amazigh Jews um, as, avo, they called it Avodat Ivrit, Hebrew labor. Um, so as a sort of like justifying force. And they also use these populations, like many were put into the Mabarot, um, like my family, which were like refugee transit camps that were very harsh uh, conditions. And some of them were put in what they called like border villages, where they would put a bunch of Arab Jewish people in a village that was next to a Palestinian village to act as like a buffer from the European Jews. Um, and so you had stuff like that happening. And it was always the intention to like, create this incredibly stratified society with European Jews on top, um, you know, Mizrahi, quote, Jews below them, and then you've Ethiopian Jews below them, and then Palestinians below them, and you've got, you know, you have multiple actual indigenous populations living in Palestine, like the Druze, and lots of Druze, they were given Israeli citizenship in 48, the Druze who lived in Palestine, and now the Druze who live in the, Golan, the occupied Golan Heights, which is Syria, um, but has been occupied um, since 1967, they were given Israeli citizenship, and they're sort of used as a tool in the same way that Bedouin are, um, as like, look at these people, they're indigenous to this land, they're not even Jewish, and look, they serve in our army, they love our state, which is, of course, not true, like, Druze serve in the army, not out of a love for Zionism. Why would they be Zionist? You know, they're not Jewish. They're, it has nothing to do with them. It's out of self-preservation. And there's, of course, a lot of contention in Palestine for that reason. Like, you know, why are they doing that? Why are they serving? And Bedouin people as well. A lot of Bedouin people will serve in the Israeli occupational forces. Um, and then that gets used as like, look, see, we have these Arab people who aren't Jew and they love the state of Israel. And it's, of course, bullshit because while they're saying that, they're demolishing Al Araqib for the 184th time. Yeah, I, I hear people say that with Native people, Native to, you know, in this country as well. They'll say, oh, but Native people serve, you know, in the US military a lot. And, you know, aren't you proud to be American? You yeah, know. I mean, you did, and you don't fucking have any love for America. <laughs> I, I find it ironic that when I say, you know, fuck this country, fuck the, you know, not a country, but, you know, the government, and they, they people will say, then leave. I'm like, me? <laughs> you should leave. Yeah, well, where am I going? I'm fucking from here. Fuck where are you gonna, from? Yeah. <laughs> where, am I, where am I going to? <laughs> like, what the fuck? So, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. But there's, you know, some names that, I'm very patriotic and I find it weird, you know, and I think that's a whole different conversation itself. Like, why are you so patriotic with this country or the army, you know, helped um, colonize the military helped colonize, obviously, you know, oh, yeah. this land. And I think it was I, one of my army units. Um, they have this like 
thing that have streamers and on the streamer is like every battle they've ever fought, right? Yeah. And one day I was just, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what made me do it. And I, I was just going through the, the battles. So, you know, uh, going through, the, you know, it's like a cloth, a long cloth. And it, it has the name like, you know, Vietnam, this these days, whatever. And then I hit Comanches. I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> I almost stole that streamer. I was just like, but there's too many people in the room. But yeah. I was like, fuck this unit. Why am I even here? <laughs> That's so fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was just like, what the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. Fuck, fuck all armies. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, do we need any other topic? Anything else to anything else to bring for uh, why Zionism is decolonized? Zionism is, is, de is decolonization is you know not decolonization. Um, there was one more little part I wanted to read, which was just like a a quote from the founding father people talking about how like they could not ever live with Arab Jews. And it was like, yeah, read it. Cool. So find this. So yeah, this is also from Sephardim in Israel by Ella Shohat. Um, <clears throat> so do, do, do. again, in the early 1950s, some of Israel's most celebrated intellectuals from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem wrote essays addressing, addressing the ethnic problem. We have to recognize, wrote Carl Frankenstein, the primitive mentality of many of the immigrants from backwards countries, suggesting that this mentality might be profitably, profitably compared to the primitive expression of children, the retarded or the mentally disturbed. Another scholar, Yosef Gross, saw the immigrants as suffering from mental regression and a lack of development of ego. The extended synopsium concerning the Sephardi problem was framed as a debate concerning the essence of primitivism, only a strong infusion of European cultural values, the scholar concluded, would rescue the Arab Jew from their backwardsness. So like that was what the fuck they were saying about the not only, you know, Jews who are immigrating from Arab countries, but the actual indigenous population who was Jewish, like the, the only people who could claim to be indigenous to Palestine, the Palestinian Jews, they call them mentally disturbed um, with the intellects of children, you know, like totally totally fucked up classic colonizer tactics like the same as when the french went into algeria and we're like we're gonna we're gonna get the jews to be a colonizing indigenous arm right they're gonna be like an, an indigenous part of the population that works with us to colonize the algerians um who are muslim and they when they went and tried to do that they were like oh shit these people are just straight up arab they're not you know they're not like us at all they're very much algerian and they're loyal to algeria um and you can read like the documents from these French officials in the 1920s. And they're like, they're like, we assert that I could find the book right now, but like we assert that um, the only use for these women who we thought would have, you know, a good purpose in our project is actually just like domestic work and sex work. And they were pretty much like all these Arab Jewish women are only good for being maids and hookers. Um, and so it's like, you can just see that across colonialism across the globe it's like yeah this all like calling folks primitive and you still hear that today like i'll hear people be like oh that you know in in people speaking hebrew and in israel being like oh this you know that moroccan guy mamash primiti like very primitive 
And it's a common thing people will say when referring to like North African Jews. Oh, Mamash Primiti, like I have a cousin, he's the best, he's Moroccan. And he married my, one of my cousins and like, it's just a classic, like anytime he starts to get upset, they're like, oh, the hot-blooded Moroccan. Oh, he's getting so angry, so primitive, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, what the fuck? Y'all are fucked up. That's so racist. Like, and we're North African too. We're just not Moroccan. Um, so you see that today, the same thing of just like, these people are primitive, they're backwards. And in the Zionist project, they use the words de-Arabization for the population that they now claim were never Arab. You know, they say like, they're like, oh, we, those Jews were never Arab. They were always you know, like, I have people be like, oh, you're Egyptian. You're like Moses. You know, you come from those, the Jews, the ancient Jews of Egypt. You're not Arab. You're like from the line of Moses. And I'm like, ah, was Moses even real? Um, <laughs> you know, like, what are you talking about? Where is that coming from? Yeah, I have a question. Yeah. Um, so in your experience, do you know in, in the Jewish communities that are not living in Israel, do they do they adhere to Zionism as much as I guess the Zionist people in Israel? I mean, obviously, you know, or 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 is it less or more, do you think? Um it really depends because there's a lot of, you know, like all Zionism is fascism, right? All Zionism is violence. Like conceptually, it's a violent project. Um, but you do have these varying levels of it. Like in Israel, you have this huge population of like liberal Zionists who are like, we want a two-state solution and we want peace with Palestine <clears throat> and Palestinians deserve rights and blah, 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 blah. And it's still just like, you know, colonization 2.0. It's, it's just as fucked up, but framed in this like uh, egalitarian way. And then you have, you know, you have people who are like, I don't support the occupation at all, but Israel has a right to exist. And then in the US, you have also, it's like a big spectrum, but I'd say 95% of American Jews are Zionist or would like identify as Zionist, just in, in the way that we talked about earlier, where it's like this indoctrination of like, yes, throughout our prayers, throughout history, we've had, there's this call to return to Zion. And so they, they think of it as like their biblical duty um, even though nowhere in the Bible did it ever say return to the land of Zion and colonize, murder, you know, the indigenous population, many of whom, many, you know, so many Palestinians living there today converted to Islam from Judaism. A uh, thousand, you know, not, not even thousands, sometimes hundreds of years ago. Um, and so, like, when we were talking about, like, Hanukkah a couple weeks ago and this story of, you know, the Maccabee family who were like, you know, these indigenous Jews fighting for their land against the Greeks and fighting off the foreign oppressor and da, 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 and people frame it and we'll try and like use that framework as like, see, look, that's what we're still doing today with Palestinians. And it's like, no, you're completely wrong. In this case, you are the Greeks who are the foreign invading force and the Palestinians are the indigenous population. And that, you know, like so many when the caliphate came through the Levant. Um, so many people who were living there were Jewish and Christian who then converted to Islam. And so like a lot of the people who are being oppressed by these European Jews are the actual descendants of the Jews who lived in the Beit HaMikdash in, in the first and second temples. Um, and like I said, there was never this, you know, 
there's nothing in the Torah that says we should oppress and colonize another people. And you have other populations who have moved in mass to Palestine historically who didn't do that. You know, like look at the Armenian Palestinian population. They've been in Palestine for hundreds of years um, and they integrated into Palestinian society while holding on to their own unique culture. And now you have, you know, no, no one in Palestine questions are Armenians Palestinian. It's like they are, they're their own, you know, their own distinct ethnic group of Palestinian people who came from Armenia with, you know, their own language. They learned Arabic. They, you know, like they're in, in Jerusalem in the old city, it's split into four quarters, the Jewish quarter, the Christian quarter, the Muslim quarter, and the Armenian quarter. And so like they very much have like historical ties to the land. And as you know, Armenian people, they have ties to like the Christian history to the land. Um, but you can just look at them as, you know, this population of people who came in mass and never ever considered colonization. They were, they were like, we want to, we want to live on this land. We want to live with this land. We want to live with these people and do it in a respectful way. And they did. And today they're as Palestinian as anyone. And, you know, there were Jews who were moving to Palestine historically in the same way for thousands of years. Like, you know, you had a lot of Jews who would come from Yemen and it just was, especially during the caliphate, um, because movement was so free. You had people coming from all over to live closer to Jerusalem, but then they were Palestinian, you know, they, they were never trying to steal and take the land and say, this is just my land. They were coming there with the idea of becoming a part of the land. And the first people, you know, you had British colonizers there, you had, you know, it's like this history of colonization and it's always been the white people doing it. <laughs> Like even during the caliphate, which you, you hear people try and frame that as colonization. And I'm like, yeah, but it was very much like this loosely decentralized thing where, you know, never were they like ethnically cleansing people and, um, you know, trying to exploit and steal. Yeah, I hear that too. When, when people talk about like the Arabs moving into Spain, they call that colonization. I'm like, uh, <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> I call that improving the land. <laughs> yeah. Like, it when was I pretty fucked up before. <laughs> so, yeah. When I lived in Spain, I used to live in Sevilla in the south. And, like, I mean, you just walk around. Like, let's be real. All the most beautiful shit in Spain was built by the Muslims. Like in Sevilla, you have like the Real Alcazar and like in Granada, you have Alhambra and, you know, all these beautiful things like La Giralda, which is like, you know, the gem of Sevilla, like the cathedral. And it has its big clock tower that's um, people go to the top of and it really sucks. You have to like wait in a giant line and then you have this amazing view of the city. And that was the minaret for the Masjid, for the mosque in Sevilla that then when, you know, when the Reconquista happened, they're like, oh, this is a badass building. Let's turn it into a church. Yeah. Um, but I'm joking. I'm against all colonization. Indigenous people, <laughs> Indigenous people should always have full sovereignty on their land without anyone. No, them. but even but when, 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 when the Arabs came in, I mean, the, the Visigoths were in, in charge there and they were German. Yeah. So no, they, they were they weren't really 
indigenous, you know? Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, not the Visigoth. <laughs> I mean, more like the actual, like, uh, Latin Spanish population that was there. Yeah. And yeah, I just think it's so, like, like, in, like, Spanish culture, you know, they're like, oh, there's so much Arab influence. It's like, yeah, like, people were speaking Arabic in Spain before the Spanish language even existed, right? Yeah. Like, the forms of Latin that later became Spanish were, like, you know, being used by the Byzantine and Visigoths, but actual Spanish didn't come till, you know, the end of that. Um, so it's like, of course, there's this massive influence. It is the cult. It was the culture of the land for hundreds of years. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, people should look into the history of um, the Arab, I don't know what, what we want to call it, occupation of Spain. But uh, the reason why they took over so quick is because I think, you know, even the one of the nobles, in, you know, uh, helped uh, get rid of King Roderick. Yeah, uh, everyone everyone and, hated King Roderick. It was yeah, like his, yeah. <laughs> it was like his cousin or his brother too that like sent sent the note to Ibn Tariq, like, hey, come through. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, please come here. You're invited to the party. <laughs> yeah, and then they're like, and then they're like, cool. You also are being disenfranchised now. Sorry, bro. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you know this whole thing that they you know they came in the Arabs came in forcefully. You know, there was some conflict, but it happened so quick, you know. Yeah, I mean, there was one major battle. There was like the, right, it was like the battle for Gibraltar. I forget what the name was, but it was like they won one battle and then they just walked through and everyone gave the villages away because they hated the people who were occupying them at the time. Yeah, 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 I agree. So, yeah, if look, people just look into that and, um, yeah. I think, uh, but you know, you know, when we have history now that the the Moors or the Arabs are painted as like this, like bad, you know, even like, uh, you know, I think didn't they uh, occupy too some parts of Italy? Uh, they're also painted. So I know some some Europeans, some Italians that were like, oh, we were, you know, they came in and they raped all of us. I was like, really, you know? Uh, oh no. <laughs> It's always framed, you know, especially in Spain today, like Spanish people are like, oh, you know, these like Muslim invaders who just were savages and da 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 da. And it's like, bro, during that time, like the things that they, they introduced, like a lot of things that we would call, you know, civilized things like mathematics and astronomy and, uh, you know, personal hygiene was like, like Arabs invented deodorant um, uh, during that time in Al-Andalus. And like, <laughs> I think the science, the science there was like the most advanced at that time in Europe. Yeah, was it, yeah. There and also in the, in the, in Baghdad. Yeah. Um, and like, you know, there was constant uh, exchange of information where they were sending people from the from Al-Andalus up to Baghdad to learn and then come back and bring the knowledge and information and then like apply that. But it was like so many things were introduced to Spain um, that were then utilized, you know, when they when the Reconquista happened and just were integrated and became part of Spanish culture. But it was like, yeah, all of these, all of these advances in math and science and stuff were happening in the caliphate. Yeah. So to the world, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that's, that's, that's me and my homie Yusuf, who's Moroccan. He came to visit me in Spain, and the whole time we're just walking around, like, you know, somebody sees a nice wall. I'm like, oh, you're welcome. We built that. 
That's no funny. Out. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so I think you know um, the next topic is it's gonna be short because you know I just want to recommend uh, how indigeneity is used uh, to promote colonization is through the the campaign against China, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, and, you know, on this podcast, we have had Carl on the show, Karuza, <clears throat> and, um, you know, you can, people can just go look up the Hong Kong episode. It's one of the, you know, the first 20, within the first 20. And I think there's the Taiwan episode and there is the um, Tibet episode. And you can see why, you know, <laughs> these three places are, are being, you know, they are part of China um and why you know these whole things of like you know and I, I'll talk about Hong Kong because my, I have a stepfather that's from Hong Kong mm -hmm. and you know the, you know I remember when the protests like a couple of years ago were happening in Hong Kong and they were saying that the mainland um were, the mainland Chinese were coming in they were like killing the Cantonese language and and blah blah blah, and they were like doing, you know, like ethnic genocide on Hong Kong, which is not true, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so when I, what you know, when these protests were getting really hot, I went to visit my stepdad, and I asked him, you know, um, how does he feel about these protests? Because he's he was born, and you know, he was raised in Hong Kong, mm -hmm. and he said it's just, it's just the British and the Americans trying to recolonize us again we don't want them there you know he was like they, they, they should just leave uh and these young people they're just brainwashed mm. you know and to me you know he he grew up during british colonization uh you know of uh, of hong kong and the stories he told me and i remember as a kid uh when there was that transition where you know hong kong would slowly come back into china uh, there was, I remember watching that on TV and, you know, he was really happy. He was like, you know, we're all Chinese, you know, like he was like, it was really, it was a, I remember we went to eat with, with, you know, the family and it was, it was a really good event for us. Uh, I was happy. I'm not Chinese and I was, I was happy, you know, and yeah. he, you know, he described, you know, that's what I learned about conversation, you know, through a global lens through him. And I think um, I'm grateful for that. But, you know, we have to understand that there's players involved when it comes to these protests, outside players like the CIA or, you know, like uh, British intelligence that are trying to create these divisions within China so China doesn't become a stronger, you know, uh, country. Then it's already, it's, it's already strong. It's already a strong country and it's growing, you know, and it's, it's a beacon for liberation, I think, in my point of view, as my own point of view, you know, uh, China has had a history of colonization. And there was a lot of countries that tried to split up China into pieces. And, you know, with the Chinese Revolution, and the, the Communist Party of China, they, uh, they, you know, they liberated China. And, you know, I think there's, um, the colonizers are holding on to the pieces they have left with, you know, they like Tibet, you know, so just listen to the, anybody should listen. That's listening. I, I also should listen. I really like, like I said, I've told you before, like I have no 
real knowledge of like the reality in China. And so I just don't feel comfortable speaking on it, but I'm yeah. as someone, yeah, I'm just generally like anti-state <laughs> and like, don't see states as a means towards liberation, but I, yeah, I, um, definitely don't buy into all the bullshit western propaganda we're fed <laughs> no yeah here i said it before i said it during uh, an interview with coral i i'm pro-china right you know in my point of view mm. i i whenever they do something good that you know they lift people out of poverty they you know they their military goes stronger to me it's good because uh a weak china is just i i don't want to see that you know and there and there's you know a lot of racism that has happened um i started that that um, there's the series with Caro before COVID, and when COVID happened, the amount of you know racism, you know here in the U.S. towards Chinese people was were just really nasty. Oh, insane! Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was it was just like they eat bats, they're you know, or, or they eat, they eat disgusting things, and you know, I growing up, I've never seen anybody eat a bat you know in that video with a person <laughs> in the bat, wasn't, it wasn't even in china it wasn't even in china it was somewhere else yeah. and people took that and said oh this is why we have covid but you know well, that's not that's not, that's that's not the reason that's one that's racist too there's people in the south that eat squirrels these are white people okay yeah. <laughs> so you know they yeah, should no, I, know, I know some white i know some white anarchists in portland who will like eat raccoons as fucking roadkill or like roadkill raccoons <laughs> that's fucking oh my they, god yeah you know, they, think they think they're taking it back to the roots um <laughs> as far as course no, but yeah no it, it totally makes sense that there was this massive rise in like you know anti-asian racism um when you know donald trump was talking about china constantly like oh china china our biggest threats china china this virus is from china so like you know, it was all just sort of building on the on the blocks that he had set in place for that racism to be so widespread. Um, but yeah, I'm just, I'm just generally like anti strong military anywhere, anti state anywhere. And I'm more in like the Zapatista, like decentralized, like the Caracoles. Yeah. That's like for me, that's like the ideal state in quote unquote because it's not a state it's like a decentralized community of indigenous people but of course like if tomorrow china disappeared the u.s's imperialism would be unchecked and that's not a good thing either i believe i believe in a strong state especially you know when it comes to fighting back against colonization uh you know let's say you know just for you know for example you know the u.s crumbles just like the Soviet Union, and it, mm. and it dissolves. I mean, like there's still other European countries that would try to mingle their way into our policies, you know, or, or you know, and you know, I I think um, it's it's never ending. You know, how when will colonization stop? When will imperialism stop? You know, when capitalism, you know, goes away? Whenever these settler states stop to exist? You know, and it's hard. It's hard. And I think going back to Trump real quick, I remember I was shocked. I was shocked that he he was so unchecked, right? Because he's somebody accused him of saying uh, you know, quote unquote, the Kung flu, right? Yeah. And it was fucking racist as fuck. And like horrible, horrible. Yeah. And then he was like, I never said that. That is racist. <laughs> and then he said it in the rally 
like yeah. weeks later online it was live and i was just like he just said it and then like after that rally the news didn't pick it up i was like didn't you try to check him like two weeks ago on this and he said it and he's recorded you know uh some somebody accused him of saying it in like the office during a private meeting uh-huh. you know where there was no cameras so he was like i never said that but he still said it and i was just like this dude is the fucking worst right <laughs> yeah <laughs> i hated that dude so much uh and but he's just a, an image of americanism he's just stupid it's a stupidity and, and racism and you know misogyny and capitalism and, and you know and it's really stupid you know ignorance and anti-science and pro-conspiracy theories i can just keep going you know yeah i mean yeah he's he was he was the quintessential fascist he was you know like how can we accelerate the rise of fascism in the u.s like this guy's the guy for it he's yeah he checked off every box you know misogyny fucking racism authoritarianism anti-media like across the board yeah and it, it's it's scary that to think that some somebody like him that is probably better spoken could rise up and actually bring up stricter fascism in this country you know or harder fascism and to me that scares me because he was an idiot right so yeah. somebody with his ideas that's smarter it's a, it's a scary thought you know yeah uh, but you know <laughs> going back to china uh it's you know, so people really need to understand that there's players involved trying to destabilize China. I think people you have to under, people have to understand that the colonization of China has been tied to the colonization of the U.S. If you hear that episode with with the Hong Kong episode with Carl, uh, you see that a lot of the um, uh, opium money from the opium wars was helped. It helped build the industry in the U.S. Mm-hmm. to colonize the u.s you know the wild west yeah the, I've read, I've, i i i think you sent me an article about that like a few months ago because yeah. i remember reading about it and how how yeah how like the opium actually funded u.s colonization which blew my mind so you know it, it shows that you know when it comes to colonization it's a global event it's not just u.s you know it's it's all intertwined and it all happened to me it's, it's, i find it weird that it all happened started happening like hardcore like after <laughs> the, the 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 christians start kicking out the uh, the muslims out of uh spain you know all and, these like expanding the yeah the same year uh 1492 the year they expelled the last moors from granada the year they expelled all the jews from spain and the year they sent fucking columbus out to go fuck shit up <laughs> It's weird, yeah, and, and it's just like you know, it's a, it's a very everything is intertwined. You know, a colonization of Africa as well, colonization of Asia, and it's just uh, you know of North and South America. We have to understand it's all intertwined, and it it cannot we cannot decolonize one place and call it a victory. We have to decolonize globally, right? Oh, it's the so. struggle is absolutely like you know intersectional and international, and like yeah, like that's and and you see that so much like you know people talking about like well you know i support black lives matter but i don't i i don't support the liberation of palestine because of this that and the other or i support or i support trans rights 
um, but I, I can't support the liberation of Palestine. And I'm like, do you think there's not black people in Palestine? Do you think there's not trans people in Palestine? Do you think this struggle isn't completely intersectional and that like, you know, until we're all free, none of us are free. It yeah. just seems so obvious to me, but um, a lot of people have a hard time making those connections. Yeah, actually, so, you know, to end the China section, uh, people should follow, go follow Carl. It's a Patreon if you have that, if you have the money. If you don't, you can follow him on Twitter and, you know, and listen to the episodes with Carl that I have. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, people using indigeneity, because I've seen that lately, like, oh, China's trying to, you know, colonize. It's a, it's a, it's a seller state when it's not. Right. Mm -hmm. It's a settler state and it's colonizing the people of Tibet and it's and it's, you know, colonizing the people of Hong Kong and Taiwan. And it's just like, you know, do you even know what you're saying? So please, you know, go fuck off, you know, and uh, I, I get that a lot in my in the comments, like especially on Instagram, like, oh, China is a settler state, it's a colonizing state. It's like, do you even know history? Like, you know, these are some of them are native people. And I'm like, you should know better. You know, I mean, yeah, I mean, I saw that post you did yesterday um, about Fidel Castro and I commented on it like, hey, you ever hear about the time that uh, Hugo Chavez filled up all the propane tanks on Pine Ridge through his subsidiary, like on the low? And I don't know if you saw, but somebody commented like, you imagine imagine actually supporting Fidel Castro and a bunch of like puke faces emojis. And I was just like classic, classic decolonized Buffalo, you know, people just attacking you for. <laughs> everything. Um, but one, one last thing that I was going to say um, on this is just like sort of thinking about that consolidation of power and like how that was able to happen in 1492, where they were able to expel all these minority populations, where they were able to go send ships to colonize land. And it's like, what were the things happening in that time? You had the uniting of the kingdoms of Spain of, you know, uh, King Ferd Ferd Ferdinand of Aragon and Isabella of Castilla, and they got married and united the kingdoms of Spain, and they did so with support of the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church at that time, you know, was this huge power in Europe, and you couldn't really do anything without their support. And so, of course, they got funded, supported through this massive, you know, um, organization and institution that is the Catholic Church. And like, we've all read the proclamations, you know, that they would read to indigenous people from the Catholic church that was like, you have to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and savior and say, there's only one God. Otherwise you're a slave and you're less than a human. And these people didn't speak Spanish. They didn't know what the fuck they were being told. And, you know, imagine if somebody walked up to you and started speaking uh, Korean and was like, either accept, you know, Barack as your one true prophet or you're my slave. And you're like, wait, what do you even say? I don't speak Korean. Um, so it was like, it was happening with like massive support and funding from these giant institutions that were yeah. changing the course of history in Europe at the time. I always think, you know, like how the native people in the U.S. or in Mexico, in this whole continent, how they got it you know, so rough with the Catholic Church because, you know, the Spanish were so brutal against, against the Arabs and then they just carried this brutality into the Americas, right? And totally. I think, I think you know, that's, you know, it's just, 
it's just like it was like a continuing thing. They were like, well, if we can do it to these, you know, to the Muslims, we can do it to these people, you know, and, and it's and it's this carried on this this like uh culture of like this, you know, disgusting culture of colonization. Um yeah, so yes, anybody listening, so part two or second example of China, just go follow. I don't want to get you know too much into it because it you know we can we've been here for an hour already. So, so the third part is something that everybody pretty sure if you <laughs> listen constantly to the podcast <laughs> hears me say is that you know the politicizing of indigenous uh identities in the US. Um I think like this week I read something about a Chicano uh, promoting a term called Mexican indigenous nationalism. And ah. I was just like, bro, I almost fainted. <laughs> I was just like, what is this nonsense, right? And it was, you know, it's pretty much just like indigenismo 2.0 oh, all over again. Totally, totally, totally. And I was just, I was just like, here we go again. You know, it's really easy to like, um, to like squash these, um these narratives you know and uh but they don't listen you know and so a lot of them are academics they're saying this and just because i tell people just because you're an academic does not mean you know everything and i think you know people taking indigeneity and turning it to to you know as a political thing you know like let's there's so many aspects to this like chicanismo or mexican nationalism or even like um people in the u.s taking our identities and twisting uh, narratives into their own benefits. It's scary because, you know, these people are slowly chipping away at our sovereignty. They're chipping away at what community means. And there's, you know, building community online, which is, is that even a thing? Is community, on, on, online community, a real community, you know? Um, next thing you know, they're gonna fucking make a, a fucking fake tribe in the metaverse or something, you know, and be yeah. like, oh, we're real. Zuckerberg. I mean, uh, recognizes talked, us. <laughs> you've <laughs> talked about it a lot on episodes that I've listened to, but just like the creation of fake tribes and indigenous institutions in the U.S. and Canada, it's like such a thing. Like, uh, I can't remember the name of the tribe, but it was I've learned this from your your podcast where like this group of people in Maine all got DNA tests and found out like, oh, we all come from this one great, 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 great grandma who was from this tribe that is a tribe that is ex exists and they're living today, you know, um, in Canada and have always existed. And these people were like, oh, well, we're starting this tribe now. And they're like, no, 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 we already exist and you're not part of us. And you know, and you see that with nonprofits, people starting non indigenous nonprofits when they're like, I mean, we have a group here in Portland. I hope none of them hear this, but uh, <laughs> they're like the mount, the mounted Cherokees, right? And it's a group of white women. Um, they're all like blonde white ladies who call themselves Mount Hood Cherokees. And like Mount Hood is a mountain here in Portland that no indigenous people have ever called Mount Hood. There's lots of names for it, Y East. Um, and some others, but first of all, there's no Cherokees from Mount Hood, you know, Cherokees are from the Southeast. <laughs> and second of all, like these, none of these people are enrolled. They're just white ladies who decided, you know, oh, I heard, you know, our family story says that I'm part Cherokee. And now they like last summer, they raised $20,000 and they were doing like, you know, they were bringing water to Warm Springs and doing 
okay stuff, but just like under this guise of they literally their fundraiser that they raised 20k was called Natives Helping Natives. And they had no relations. They had no relations with any tribes, with any indigenous community. And they still do that. And, yeah, it's hard. It's hard, it's hard because uh, it's, getting, it's getting tough when it comes to talking about the subjects, you know. And I think there's like a sick fantasy in people's heads to be native, you know. And when being native is, is work, you know, helping your communities, you know, preserving your cultural languages, you know, keeping family ties and, you know, and, and fighting against the southern states and, you know, constant movement. And then, and then now we have people taking our identities, creating political ideologies, you know, under that the, sky, the guise of indigeneity when it has nothing to do with it. You know, people ignore the history of, of uh, you know, for example, Chicanismo and Mexican nationalism, the, the, the history of settler colonization within these, you know, uh, ideologies. And yeah. I, I think that, um, you know, same thing with Americanism. Obviously, everybody knows that America is a seller idea project, right? Yeah. Nobody, like nobody, nobody's like denies Canada. it. Even white people know it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> so, of course. So, but I think, I think people don't realize that, you know, I'm going I'm to get more into this after the, after the new year, how, you know, Chica, not Chicanismo, but Mexican nationalism itself is a seller colonial you know projects an idea right and it has a history of you know colonizing indigenous people so anybody that tries to you know coin the term mexican like mexican indigenous nationalism is just a fucking fool and they can come on the podcast and this and, and, and argue it if they want i welcome you yeah <laughs> phd in fucking uh I mean, ignorance you know? <laughs> i mean so, look at like look at the concept of like you know, indigenismo and like La Raza Cosmica and all of that, that like became really prevalent in the 1920s in Mexico of like, we are one Raza Cosmica. We're one race of indigenous people, of mestizo people and da, 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 da. And it just completely denied the existence of the actual people who were living in Pueblos who were indigenous and had been living in those communities since time immemorial and who today still live in these communities in Mexico where they don't speak Spanish, you know, like uh, where the main language or their indigenous languages and these communities are existing and uh, still facing colonial state violence like we see in Chiapas, like we see in Oaxaca. And then Mexico goes and says, oh, we're a nation of indigenous people. And it's like, of course, that was, you know, how they were trying to frame it in the 20s during the revolution when they were, um, you know, replacing one like uh the porfiato porfiriato the uh diaz dictatorship with their dictatorship um and they were like okay we have to frame this in a different way because it's a different time than it was in like the 1890s so we're going to frame it as this indigenous reclamation and they took the the concepts and the ideas from actual indigenous people who were fighting for sovereignty like zapata and they took the vernacular that he was using and then fucking killed him. Right. <laughs> same, you yeah. know, same, same with Pancho Villa. Like they both got killed by the Mexican state and now they're everywhere. You know, now like you go, like I was in uh, uh, like Puerto Vallarta right before COVID happened and it was right after Christmas. And there's, you know, all these things of Zapata and Pancho Villa 
wearing like Christmas sweaters painted on the side of shops and, um, you know, like their, their images and their names and have been co-opted by the Mexican state as like, look, these are the people who created the state. This is how we got the revolution. This is how we got freedom. And it's like, no, these were the people calling for indigenous sovereignty who you fucking murdered with state violence. But, you know, the colonizers always put their two cents in. I, I think uh, another people that that uh, gets uh, commercialized is like Frida and Diego. And I'm going to cover them, too. You know, Frida and Diego, I'll, we'll talk about Diego. Diego talked and talked. He had a lot of um, artifacts to the point there was a book release. He had a book uh, that he, you know, I guess categorized uh you know, uh, the, the indigenous artifacts that he collected. And uh, I came to, you know, I, I was reading some article where he it says that he miscategorized uh, these artifacts in his own book, in the book, right? And it, it shows that, you know, all he did was take the aesthetics of indigeneity and didn't understand even the communities they came from. That totally right? makes, I mean, he seemed like a fucking asshole, honestly. Like I like, yeah. you know, workers' rights, socialist kind of stuff he did, and solidarity with American workers. But like, the dude just seemed like a total piece of shit. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I heard he was abuser, but I don't know. You know, it yeah, really that's like what I've heard too. Yeah, but you know, so he, he, you know, didn't he took the you know he him and Frida and Frida's been accused of taking the aesthetics of, you know, people from Oaxaca and she's not from Oaxaca and, you know, and, and, you know, again, taking even the aesthetics of like, she, I forgot what article she, she, she had the book and she took the, the indigenous aesthetics from the book. So they were learning about indigeneity through books too. Right. So it wasn't really totally. from communities. Right. I and mean, then, you've probably been to their house in Mexico city. No, like you never. Oh, I've, I've been there. Um, I'm corny, bro. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I mean, if you just walk through that house, you're like, these were not indigenous people. These were like elites. These were like uh, academic elites who had so much access to whatever the fuck they wanted because they were rich and, and cool, you know? Yeah. So that's the thing. So, you know, uh, you know, they, they promoted the idea of, of indigenismo. It was that you know the idea of assimilating native people into colonial Mexico and telling telling the population, hey, we're all a little bit indigenous, you know, uh, you know, let's just unite under this nationalism, you know, and we'll, we'll move forward. But you know, around the same time, we have to talk about like uh, how you know Vasconcelos books came about, and he promoted the same idea, you know, this this cosmic race. Um, everybody's a little bit Asian, everybody's a little bit Anglo, everybody's a little bit indigenous, a little, little bit black, and we're going to make this perfect race. But, you know, if you read his book, it's... He's fucking racist, bro. It's super sick. I had to, like, reading that book, I, even when I, other people, other people's book I've read uh, when it comes to Chicanese, well, I had to put the book down and step away, you know? And I, I, Vasconcelos is a book that I had to, like, step back, read a page or two and be like, oh my God, like how did this stuff get taught in Chicano studies or Mexican-American studies? How? I mean, totally. You and, know? and for me growing up as, you know, a non-Latino, non-Indigenous person in the U.S., like I remember learning about it a little when I was younger and, and being like, hell yeah, viva la raza. Like that's, 
awesome. Like it's this movement of, you know, separating from colonialism and separating from these Western colonial structures. Um, and then I read that book in college and I was like, this is fucked up just straight up. Like, uh, I don't know if it's exactly white supremacy, but it's white supremacy. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It, it is. Um, let me, let me, um, can we pause a little bit? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So I want to read one real, real uh, small quote real quick. I had the, the Vasconcelos book right next to me this whole time. I just realized it. So this is quote, it says, it says this mandate from history is first noticed that in that abundance of love that allowed the Spaniard to create a new race with the Indian and oh. black love. That's not love. Oh. It was colonization. Right. That's so, so fun. I remember reading that too and being like, love, what love? Violence. Yeah. Like, oh, let's, you know, colonize people. Hey, that's love. That's not fucking love. You know, it's, uh, when I read that, I I fucking almost like burned that book. Dude, that's, that's honestly like that can just to go back to like Palestine, like that is a tactic that's constantly used is like, we 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 had to not not for the Palestinian population, but for the the Arab Jewish population. Like we did this out of love and protection, and like we wanted to protect them, and they were living in these horrible conditions. And we we raised them up out of poverty and gave them a chance at a real life, at a civilized life. And um, it's it's fucking disgusting because like it's hate. It's literally the opposite of love. It's done out of hate and it's done out of like an idea of supremacy and thinking you're better than someone. So like framing it as love is just disgusting to me. Yeah. That's just like a, a husband abusing his wife, like, you know, and saying, Hey, look what you made me do. It's totally. Like, totally. You fucking asshole, you know? Yeah. So I think that's, that's the thing. And I, it's hard because, you know, these people create these, um ideologies out of you know with with the mask of indigeneity it's a misappropriate i say this all the time with a misappropriated mask of indigeneity and they they say all the time it's out of love and i tell them no it's not it's out of fetishizing our our identities it's about ignorance about our, our 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 struggle and it's and it's about it's colonization you know, totally. The root about it is colonization, and you're using it to create something, to create to paint. You know, you're, you're, it's pretty much like putting the uh, indigenous misappropriated indigenous mask on settler colonization, saying, "Hey, look, here's the solution," and that's not the solution. That's more of a, it's a you know, it's even more of a problem. And I think people have to realize that, you know. To the untrained ear, it's like, yeah, it sounds cool, man. But to Native people, it's like, what is this disgusting idea you have? I bet you, you know, people, why did Vasconcelos get so big? Was because people didn't understand indigenous voices and business perspectives. So, you know, the normal, the normal Mexican person was like, yeah, this is fucking cool. The cosmic grace, ooh, you know, yeah, like stupid totally. shit. And in Chicano studies picked it up and they were like, yeah, look. Like the cosmic race so is so great, but really it, it's not. That book sucks, you know. Yeah. And I think uh, once you know, uh, indigenous people start criticizing and speaking out about what well, they have already, you know, Mexican nationalism uh, and, and Chicanismo, more and more and more 
and, and you know people will start realizing that these these you know ideas that have been using indigeneity in the wrong way are, are going to expire you know totally i mean look at like uh just here in america like how many people i know in portland who are like grew up mexican and are now calling themselves indigenous and are saying i'm aztec i'm mechica i'm and when you ask them oh that's cool do you, do you have relations with those people like you know do you know what tribe you come from and they're like no 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 but i'm mexican so of course i'm aztec oh, and then you God. have you have like like these azteca like the danza crews i'm yeah. sure you live in san diego so they have them down there they have them in la they have them in portland and it's I know a lot. I know people who are white, white fucking Mexicans who are like, I'm indigenous and I do Aztec danza. And it's like, it's something that you and I have talked about. And also me and Robin and Robin, uh, shout out to Robin, the listen to War Cry podcast. She's the dopest in, in the world. Totally listen to, subscribe to War Cry, subscribe, War Cry podcast. <laughs> amazing podcast. Amazing. Press like, <laughs> but uh hit the like hit smash that like button um <laughs> but she me and robin robin gave me this like it's given me a really good perspective on why this is happening so much and it's like these people who are the colonizer who are the oppressor have been completely cut off from any sort of roots any sort of culture any sort of actual community that they're desperate for it right they'll take it anywhere they can get and that's how you get these like new age spiritual communities that aren't actually based in any spiritual practices, but just a co-option of 50 different ones. Um, and you have people, you know, doing like non-indigenous people leading paid ceremonies for other white people to go to. And um, just this kind of like phenomena of that happening. I agree. You know, I, I, I shared, I don't know if I shared the story, I'm pretty sure I have, you know, in San Antonio, I, I, I created this PowerPoint about native sovereignty. And mm -hmm. there was somebody in the community that was pissing everybody. This person was even pissed up, pissing off nuns, Catholic nuns in San Antonio, right, with her <laughs> fake Aztec stuff. And yeah. the, the nuns themselves were like, please help us. It's, 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 I've, never, <laughs> I've never encountered that in my life. When like Catholic nuns said, hey, you know, like we have, we have an issue here. How can you help us, you know, with her pretend Indianisms? And I think um, I, I invited this person and her family to my house and I showed her the PowerPoint slide. And, you know, I, 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 um, she admitted in my house that she's not native yeah right and i was just like holy shit like maybe you should tell people right you yeah, well, are you are literally exploiting people she demanded like 200 bucks from like this elderly indigenous person for doing danza at their event right i was like she was like oh i danced here so now you owe me for performance fees and this dude called me he was i don't know what to do i paid her 250 dollars like last week she wants another 200 dollars for doing the same dance and i you know i just invited her here and they made this performance and i was just like don't pay don't pay don't pay her that they're exploiting you so this this person was using indigeneity to to exploit but even now sometimes their stuff comes up on my, my social media i can see there's She's still pretending and doing like Aztec rituals, you know? And it's like, totally. why, why are you still doing it? You were in my house, you and your husband admitted that you're not native, you know? Yeah. And you're still at it. 
And I, it, to me, it's shocking. You know, it's shocking. And I, this is that's not the first person that I've, I've had that before. At UC San Diego, the same thing. There's several people told me that told me, you know, I'm not native. And I was just like, then maybe you should say it. And when it's time, when it was time to say it, you know, to the group, they were like, I can't say it. Or like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, you told me. Like, why are you here if you're not native, like in this native yeah. group, in a leadership position? And it's weird how people like they hold on, they, they want to die on that hill. Oh, right? totally. And then you, <laughs> and then it turns into like actual violence, like we've seen with so many like Chicano people who are like, I'm from this tribe and they'll just, you know, pick a tribe and that's my tribe. And then when that tribe doesn't accept them because they have no relations and they have no actual ties to those people, um, they get violent towards those tribes and they start to try and call them out and um, yes, you know, and perpetuate yes. colonial structures of violence to the people who they're claiming they come from when they're not accepted by them. And it's like, you can't like, you know, I couldn't just show up in fucking Tibet tomorrow and be like, I'm Tibetan, whatever, you know, like that's not how it works. Um, and then you have like, like, like we talked about like this, you know, need for culture, need for roots, and makes me think of like Hawaii, right? And Hawaii essentially in my eyes is, you know, of course it's all indigenous land, but like, it's like, uh, like I think it should be treated in the same way as like we treat a reservation, like you shouldn't go there without permission um, from the native people. But then you have all these white people living in Hawaii, right? Who a white kid will be born in Hawaii and then is, you know, parents name him Kamea or like, Oh my God. Yeah. Kelani or something, you know, and these names that like hold weight, you know, like Kamea, it's like the one and only like Kelani, like the glorious chief. And they give them these names. And then these kids who they're born in Hawaii and they'll come here and be like, Oh, I'm Hawaiian. And you're like, Oh, are you like Hawaiian Hawaiian? Or are you just like, you were born on Hawaii. And they're like, no, I'm Hawaiian. Like my name's Kai Koa, you know, Kamea or whatever. And their last name's like Fredrickson. And they have no ties to anything that's Hawaiian or indigenous, but they grew up on that land as the colonizer, as the occupier. And we're like, I don't have any culture of my own, but this culture that I'm, you know, that I'm actively participating in cultural genocide of is really cool. So I want to take part in it. And, you know, you have white people who um, start their own like outrigger canoe crews and things that are like really traditional, you know, like, Imagine if in Washington, just a bunch of white people were like, we're a canoe family now. Like that shit wouldn't fly. You can't just decide that you're part of a tribe, that you're part of a people when you have no actual ties to it, except that you are colonizing them. It's a matter of time before a white person says that. I, it will happen one day. <laughs> Never <Yeah>. underestimate. <laughs> no, but I agree with Hawaii thing. I think Hawaii is... is strategic for imperialism with the U.S. imperialism, you know, with the military bases and, you know, uh, not, not, you know, giving the island back to the indigenous peoples. Um, but I think uh, I agree with you and it's hard. It, all this is hard. You know, civil conversation is hard. I always say that it's always hard. It's hard. It's hard because, you know, having these conversations, um, I hope people understand that, you know, indigeneity is being used, uh, it's being politicized you know, in a way where it supports cellular conversation. And, uh, you know, I try to have this conversation with people, with people and they, they don't want to listen, you know? Some people are stuck on their own train of thoughts. They have these ideas 
where they have no 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 connection to community you know they um want to push their way they 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 mimic or they yeah they, I, that was the word mimic or they try to copy they think power the power should look like 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 american you know power like american imperialist power that's how they imagine power you know what i'm saying yeah. like this numbers and, and military might and, and but you know it's it's you know they don't they don't know about theory they don't know about you know community or indigenous sovereignty they just they just think power is just like numbers and that's not where power comes from you know if you can have numbers but if you guys don't know what you know what direction you're heading or you know you don't know you know how to use this power then it's misguided Totally. Yeah. I mean, power comes from like truth, like being able to speak truth to power and like, you know, and that's why people gain power by like creating these false narratives and creating these things that they're framing as like the truth and the history, because it validates their like uh, theft of power. Yeah. So, I mean, before we head out, I do want to say we brought, we brought up war cry. People should subscribe to war cry, you know, and, um, uh, Robin and Lucy have, have been on this podcast. I think Robin's a co-host still. Uh, she's been really busy with World Cry. I'm right now. I'm eating. I was eating <laughs> jerky that uh, that Lucy sent. <laughs> Lucy is yeah. Lucy's the the yeah. absolute jerky queen of Yakima. She's got the finest. <laughs> hit her up. Hit her up. <laughs> Smash the like button on that jerky. <laughs> That's really good. And oh, so uh, good. Yeah. My son's like, he's obsessed with it. You know, he's like, give me more. I'm like, Last oh, time man. Lucy came to Portland, she made me like a whole tray of cheese enchiladas. Oh so, my God. Shout out to Lucy. Holy <laughs> cow. No, yeah. I, I thank you for the jerky. I, I I gave a lot a lot away for Christmas, you know, mm -hmm. and I still have a ton. And I was like, oh my gosh. Like, um, luckily, my, you know, my kids love it. So, uh, yeah, but I, I'm always eating every day. So, it's it's good but uh and i you know i really subscribe to that podcast you know um the topic of missing and murdered indigenous women is really important you know throughout the u.s in mexico too in canada so i think um the work they do i am grateful for right and i think they they really do need more uh, people listening to 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 their podcast. Oh, it's it's incredibly important work. Like every I, I try and catch them live whenever I can, because, yeah, it's like every week I learn so, so much. And yeah, it's like what what better way to you know support this than like it's a podcast completely run by indigenous women from Yakima. Yeah. Um, who are bringing awareness to like a lot of these things that people do not want to talk about and they have guests who you wouldn't expect and like it's uh yeah it's really powerful and yeah i'm grateful for them and just excited to see all the amazing stuff that they're gonna do yeah so yeah you're listening uh subscribe to war cry they're on everything i think they're on spotify youtube um but that's what i know right now i mean um so it, it's yeah subscribe and thank you for coming on I think um, it was a good conversation. This this is going to be the last episode of the year because I do want to take a break. Um, I'm not, I don't want to be checking my podcast social medias during Christmas. I have family coming over from out of town. 
Uh, so I'll probably post memes here and there, like I always do whenever I catch them. But other than that, like uh, I will start after New Year's, you know, planning um, new episodes. If anybody wants to come on, just, you know, yeah, you can message me, you know, but if I don't reply real quick, I apologize. But I do, you know, I, I, I'm down to try to plan for after New Year's. Um, it's not going to be before New Year's, I promise that. <laughs> so uh, I hope everybody has a good break. Stay safe because COVID is getting pretty bad again. So don't wear a mask. Wear, a mask. wear your mask. Get vaccinated. Don't be a bitch. You know, <laughs> fucking protect your community. <laughs> yeah, your community is very important. So yeah, so just um, stay safe and have a good holidays. Great chatting with you, Habibi. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah.